0: When this meeting first was in my mind to consider what topic (coughs) would be suitable, I was in the midst of a rather fierce controversy which has uh, been forced upon me with regard to the question of the millennium, and I was tempted to go into that question this evening, but I'm very glad that I've not yielded to the temptation. Because however much we may be involved in controversy with regard to prophetic things, that is not the heart and essence of our witness. So I hope you'll give me a good mark for being, uh, giving it a second thought. An anniversary is an annual opportunity to look back over the past, to trace the hand of the Lord, to give thanks for his faithfulness and be very conscious that we've got a long way to go yet before we can write against our name the word perfect. That will always be until travelling days are done. And then secondly, an anniversary is not the place to start going into new things experimenting, trying to prove something. It's more an opportunity to say, we have come together, this little group of God's people, because we believe and stand for a certain aspect of God's word. And although I'm pretty certain that a great number of you had no need to open your Bibles when we read Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14. Most of you could practically recite that from memory. Well, the sheer saying of that, friends, marks you off as a very distinct and separate people. For you could go to church and chapel and mission of all classes and all types and if you said to them, can you recite to me Psalm 23? They most likely would do it. Do you know John 14? Oh, they revel in it. Can you give me, in your own words, if not a true citation, can you give me, in your own words, the first 14 verses of the epistle to the Ephesians? And I say, oh, I don't think I've ever read it. I don't think I've ever heard it. You say to them, You go to church regularly? Yes. Has your minister ever taken the Epistle to <laughs> the Ephesians with you once in the whole of your attendance there? I don't think he ever has. Now, there's something wrong there, isn't there? You see, it may be that some people would say that we are wrong because we give it such preeminence in our witness. But at least we are recognizing that here is a passage of scripture that belongs to the present period. When I say the present period, I mean to say that something happened, so tragic, so unprecedented, that unless God, in his wonderful grace and foreknowledge, had prepared beforehand, the whole of the purpose of God and the whole of the work of Christ would have been suspended. You say, what is that thing? Well, the prophet Hosea, looking down the age, he said, the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, or without a priest, or without an image, or without several things that characterize their peculiar calling, and that they should return unto the Lord in the latter days. And to give us a word to speak about that awful thing that was going to happen to Israel, that man, Hosea, had a child. And he, was, he had to call that child, Low Army, which in the Hebrew language means, Not My People. Now some people stop there. And if they stop there, it's enough to make you stop. If this chosen people, since the days of Abraham, the ones upon whom God focused all his attention, No nation of the earth comes into the Old Testament Scriptures except those who have some contact with Israel. Doesn't matter how great and mighty they are, they're never mentioned, except they come into touch with that little people. For the whole of the purpose of God was vested in them. So you cannot set it aside and say, oh, well, it makes no difference to us that the chosen channel of blessing should be set aside. I likened it to something like this, it's a crude figure, I know. But you imagine a village that had its water supply suddenly cut off, bombed or something. And they were all say, oh, makes no difference. It's rather a tragedy for the aqueduct, I must admit, but makes no difference to us. But you say, but that was the sole supply of your water. Now, if you go to the Scriptures, you haven't the slightest hint that any Gentile would ever be blessed if Israel weren't there. In fact, a Gentile had a very great difficulty to get any blessing when Israel were there. Do you remember the passage? A Syrophoenician woman who was a Gentile, she came to the Lord, she heard all the others speaking about him as the son of David, so she said, Thou son of David, and a merciful Saviour, answered her, not a word. And then when she pleaded again, she said, Lord, that extended it, Lord. And then he said to her these words that almost shut the door again. You do not take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. That's our Saviour, don't forget, friends. He said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, if that's chapter and verse, and it is, Where do you come in, friends? Where did you come in? Well, then you see, not only was that people called Low Army, because they were not going to be for a time being the people of God, but God added something else even worse. And I will not be your God. Strictly speaking, no member of the church of the one body can come into the presence of God today and say, Oh, thou God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of my fathers. You haven't got any fathers, in the scriptural sense. And God is not for the moment, he will be blessed be his name, but not for the moment, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. For the people of Israel, when they went out into their present blindness, took their covenants and their special privileges and their association with the God of Israel with them. Now, if God hadn't already prepared that there should be something that will fill this present interval, we should have been of all men the most miserable. In fact, we wouldn't have known we were miserable. We should have known anything about it and had no option. So, you understand when I speak of this present dispensation, this present time, as a parenthesis, a parenthesis, One of my very uh, modest attainments is the inability to get very keenly interested in arithmetic. Uh, I'm the sort of person who comes to the conclusion that I've got the right change when I get to Glasgow after thinking it over all the (laughs) way (laughs) since (laughs) you But don't you see, it was dinged into me at school that you must not ignore those brackets. Why those brackets should turn the whole thing upside down and make pluses, minuses, I never was quite sure about. But I'm seeing it happening with all God's people. They're assuming that they can claim all the things that God spoke in the Old Testament prophets and in the Gospels as though this tragic thing had never happened. At the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, Paul called the elders of the Jews, He spent a whole day going through the Old Testament Scriptures and when they manifested in Rome that they were doing the same thing that they'd done in Jerusalem, he quoted for the last time in Scripture the passage from Isaiah 6 and then said these words, the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles. And that's where we come in. But if Israel have taken their covenants and their promises and the name of God himself with them, We have no claim upon him, no claim upon him unless he steps forward with some new way of dealing with us. Now this is an old story, isn't it, friends? It's the goal of all our ministry. It's the thing that's everlastingly cropping up, the teaching of the epistle to the Ephesians. There's one of my daughters here this evening. I should have been glad if the three were here. But circumstances will not allow that. I would like to break for a moment into a little family secret that my youngest daughter has a little one. But, but, there's a but about it. She's been hoping for a little one for a long time and she's now had to admit that it's not possible. But apparently joy has come into her life through somebody else's tragedy and I find that I have another grandson. Well, when those three daughters were here, sometimes I used to see a little flash go between them, and I knew what was in their mind. Here's Dad on Ephesians again. (laughs) You know, if I was dealing with Genesis 1 or Revelation 22, somewhere or another, like King Charles said in Dickens, Ephesians had come in. Well, I wouldn't have it otherwise, friends, but that's where we get our calling. What well, I felt this evening then, although most of you know this special epistle, you know something of its wonders. I should be very surprised if you say, well, that was a waste of time this evening, just going over Ephesians that we know almost backwards. If we live as old as Methuselah, friends, and we take this book again and again, we shall find joys and wonders in it until the very last breath we have. There's one way in which we may help ourselves in the approach to this Ephesians, which I want to do this evening, and that is rather a negative way. We won't stop on the negative too long, but just this. You know when you come to Paul's epistle to the Romans, you've got his climax epistle as the final word that he gives in his ministry as a free man. After that he takes out the prisoner. And in that epistle, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first. Jew was still first. He hadn't been set aside. In his defense, in Acts 26, he says that he was standing there for the hope of the promise of the fathers, unto which hope our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. When he addressed the, the, the Jews at Rome after the shipwreck, he said, for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. In the island of Morta, after that shipwreck, he was the only one who had enough gumption to go around and get firewood because of the cold. There were prisoners, there were sailors, there were soldiers, and they were all shivering, and it was Paul who hadn't got his halo on. There are some people who could take a leaf out of Paul's book. You know the old saying that somebody is so spiritual-minded he's no earthly good. Well, the Apostle Paul wasn't like that. Not like that. He was the only one who could forget himself. That's true spirituality. And by so doing, he manifested to everybody there that Pentecostal gifts were still in in operation. A viper seized upon his arm. And those people in Malta, they knew what a viper was. I mean, I've seen people run for their lives at a poor little grass snake. But all they knew, was they watched to see that he should swell up and fall dead. And when nothing happened, they changed their mind. They said, this man must be a god. And then we are told that the, the father of the man who entertained him was sick of a bloody flux. That's Anglo-Saxon. The word in the original is dysentery. Either of them. They're not one of those funny pains that somebody heals and nobody knows what it was. Dysentery. He put his hands on him and healed him. So the very last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, you've got these signs shall follow them that believe. They shall take up serpents and they shall lay their hands on the sick. And then the very next epistles, he says, I've left behind a valued servant sick. And he sends to Timothy a prescription for his oft infirmity not because there was any lack of faith on the part of Paul, but he'd come within the brackets, friends, a new dispensation had started. So you see, it's not good enough for us merely to pick chapter and verse somewhere. We want to know to whom that was written and in what circumstances. And you could depend upon it that if you ask this question and get the answer, you've got the key. Whenever you're reading any part of Scripture, is the people of Israel at that time a factor recognised by God, or are they dismissed? And according to your answer, so you must act. Now, I would be—I would say that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, at least I hope I'm not. I say at this moment it's a power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it, but I cannot now take the line to the Jew first. If the Jew believes it, he believes it, but not as a Jew, he believes it as a sinner like I am. He cannot have any precedence over anybody else because he happens to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's coming again presently, but not now. And so we could go through the whole list of things. If you go through the epistle to the Galatians and Romans and mark the number of times Abraham is mentioned, you might be surprised. Abraham. And he's never again mentioned in Ephesians, Philippians, or Colossians. Never. Because the promise made in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians goes back before the foundation of the world when neither Abraham nor Adam nor any of us were in existence. But I don't think it would be wise if we just persisted in the negative side. You know so much of that. Let's have a little bit of the positive, shall we? And so, although I've got yards of it here, and you can read some of my writings and find there's yards of it there, In fact, we're talking in feet and inches and miles of this now. I was told that I left behind in the United States 12 miles of recorded tape. How many miles are going to be? I don't know yet. So let's fill them with something that's positive and worth listening to. We'll turn then away from the argument that Israel are gone and we'll come to the argument that God hasn't gone and as long as he has provided a way and a means, all is well. Now, one of the strangest things at first is to discover a title of Christ in Ephesians 1, verse 17. Our brother this afternoon was speaking about the prayer of the Apostle. And in that prayer, he says in verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should that have been necessary? Never again does he say it in any other part. For some reason he said it now. Oh, I hope some of you are saying, Peace, teacher, I know. You say, I see it. Up till that moment, friends, up till that moment, he was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And now Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are gone. And I, a poor Gentile, what am I going to do? Well, he says, don't worry, friends as long as Christ remains all's well. That's his argument in the epistle to the Hebrews. See, the bottom dropped out of the whole universe for the Hebrew. He says the law was waxing old and vanishing away. The priests, all they needed a savior themselves before they could do any priesthood for anybody else. It was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should cut away sin, and the tabernacle was a worldly sanctuary. Oh, they said, You're telling us all this, all that we believed and hoped for is all in vain. He says, well, friends, I've told you that, but I've got to tell you something else. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. For while that's the truth, you can lose the whole lot and be the better off for it. As long as he remains. So, if anybody were to trick me and say, ah, you can't go to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, I thought don't want to. You don't. I go to the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. He steps in and says, that's good enough for you, isn't it? I say, it's not only good enough, Lord, it's 10,000 times too much for me to realise that he's the God and Father of my Saviour. Good. You see, I'm a tantalising person in the eyes of so many people. They can't turn me out of anything. (laughs) Oh, they would have done it long ago if they could. But they don't don't belong to anything except him. And they can't touch that. And they can't touch you if you're in the same capacity and position. Well, now we'll then look at this epistle and ask ourselves, are there outstanding distinctive features in this epistle which answers to the thought that it is something new Something not quite the same as we find embedded in the earlier revelation of God's truth. Let's give it a test, shall we? In verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, this apostle opens with the word, Blessed be God. Now that's a fine symptom. A lovely symptom. He doesn't come into the presence of God and start asking for something. I got into trouble once when I said, perhaps I ought to have closed my words a bit, I said, prayer isn't beggary. And then of course they said, I denied that we should ever ask God for anything, which of course is absurd. But this man, his heart's so full that before he asks for anything, he asks presently, as you know. He starts praying for them, that's asking. But before ever he prayed for them, he blessed God for all that he'd done for them. You know, it's a good start for prayer. You get on the right track then. So he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us. Blessed be God who hath blessed us. There are two words for blessed. One, which is very often translated happy, has to do with something which is within, internal. This word has to do something that is without, external. It's the word eulogy. That's very often connected with an after-dinner speech. A eulogistic speech. Eulogy is it. to speak well. Always oh, has speak well of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he's spoken well of you. Fancy that. Spoken well of us. The things that He said concerning us Well, uh, that's that's an understatement. I have not seen, nor ye have heard, neither have it entered the heart of men the things that God has prepared for them that love him. So we have this emphasis. Blessed be God who hath blessed us. He goes on further. Blessed us with all spiritual blessings. That as it stands is tremendous. But what the apostle said was the word blessing in the singular. He didn't say blessings in the plural. Now instead of that making them less, that makes them more. But he say, how do you make that out? This is it. Who hath blessed us with every blessing that is spiritual. Now we don't know the number. Then it doesn't matter. We only know this that the very first note that struck is there's nothing in the whole universe of God that he will withhold from you if it's good for you. And some things belong to another realm about which we haven't any language to describe them. There's There's a star, blessed be God, who hath blessed us with every blessing that is spiritual. At first you may think that you would find the word spiritual not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. I'd like to be provocative and say no more and just go on, so that you might do what I've done sometimes in my earlier days. I've sat up till about three in the morning, ransacking a concordance for a text that wasn't there, and that was most convincing to me that I was wrong. You know, the only occurrence of the word "spiritual" in the Old Testament is this verse: "The spiritual man is mad." That's all it says. There's no word spiritual in the Old Testament. Of course, God blessed Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, but it withholds the world. But you know, many of the blessings of Israel were blessings of basket and store. That as they were blessed by God, they would have fruitful fields and their wealth would increase. I don't say I wish I belonged to that denomination because it's not running at the moment, friends. <laughs> And and those of you who have got the biggest watch chain, you're not the ones who most likely are most spiritual. Not now. No, no. It may be you'll lose a lot if you're all spiritual. And some have found that out. So, we have our first distinctive blessing. The way in which the Apostle uses this word spiritual will help us to see its meaning. Chapter 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, now I'm going to jump right down to the bottom, spiritual wickedness. That's all. That's all I want to say. Not flesh and blood enemies, but spiritual wickedness. So these are not flesh and blood blessings, but spiritual blessings. They're of that order. Now as I have not unlimited time, and neither of you And this recording things going, whizzing round like anything in this little vestry. I'll leave that and come to the next. Verse 3. These spiritual blessings which are unique are to be enjoyed in a unique place. In heavenly places in Christ. Now, the word places is in italics. So there is no actual word in the original for the word place. You have to say in heavenly or something. Now, one way has been to get over the trouble is to say among heavenly beings. And it is certainly true that the preposition N, when it's followed by the plural, sometimes must be translated by the word among. But it's also true that many many times when it's translated by the when it's followed by the plural, it is translated in. So we've still got to discover. Let's look at the end of this same chapter one, shall we? For we have the word in heavenly places, or whatever this same word is. Again, it speaks of the mighty power that was wrought in Christ, verse twenty, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right and in the heavenly places. Well, that's one good thing then. We know that wherever these heavenly places are, or whatever they are, they are at the right hand of God. That's number one. Now, if this is persisted in, that it means among heavenly beings, how does the next verse follow? He's among heavenly beings far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That doesn't seem to be running on all fours, does it? If he's far above them all at the right hand of God, he can't be among them. At least, doesn't seem to make sense, does it? But we haven't finished yet. Verse 22. And have put all things under his feet. Now, if you know the apostles' use of that, and if you don't, I think we ought to see it, Two references only. Hebrews chapter 2. He's the only man in the New Testament who quotes those words. All things under his feet. Hebrews 2 verse 8. That was put all things in subjection under his feet. And then he adds a little comment. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not good under him. What an isolated position! When it says all things under His feet is not among any spiritual beings, He's far above them all, with one exception: God Himself. And as a little incidental, some of you may not believe Paul wrote the Epistle to the Hebrews. Well, let's see what 1 Corinthians 15 says, of whether you're not reading the writings of the same man. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 27. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. Don't you see? That's the climax statement. There is nobody sitting. Nobody there. But Christ. That's his position. All else. And he doesn't even say angels, friends. Angels don't come into the story in these brackets, did you know that? All the angels with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob right the way up through the scriptures in the birth of Christ, herald angels right the way through into the Acts of the Apostles. There they are, right into the epistles and then stop. This church is blessed not among angels or far above angels only, but far above the aristocracy of glory, principalities, powers, thrones, dominion. Well, as this is not the only thing to deal with, don't you realise that this is another unique sphere? We are blessed with all, spiritual blessing, that's one thing, and we are blessed in the most unique sphere in these heavens. Because in chapter 4, we have a, an element of um, comparison which will help us. Chapter 4, verse 9, Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. The epistle to the Hebrews says he passed through the heavens. The epistle to the Hebrews says he's made higher than the heavens. So here we have then a unique sphere. But you say, yes, sir, that's all very well you're telling me that Christ is there. Oh yes friends, I haven't got to the bit I was aiming at. I'm glad you reminded me. Chapter 2, verse 6. And has raised us up together and made us sit together. If it had said made us stand there, it would have been almost too good to be true. But this says sit together. Here we're almost at the last rung of a ladder that leads from the cross to the glory. Oh, you know it, friend. But you, you'd like to hear it again and again until you get to the top run. Here they are with him. We we are crucified with Christ, says Paul. We die with him. We're buried with him. And if that's not the end of you and me and the old man, what else God can God do or say? Buried with him. Then it says quickened with him. That caught you out because you were going to say raised with him, some of you. Quickened with him. That's now raised with him seated with him that's where we stop now this is all potentially because you and I were never actually crucified, you and I were never actually buried, you and I have never actually been raised but potentially with him that's how God views us but one day it's all going to be real and it's the last one when Christ, who is our life should be made manifest we should be made manifest with him is the last with, in glory. So now we've got every blessing that is spiritual in a most unique sphere, heavenly places. Now we go back to chapter 1 and see that it is associated with a unique period. I shall work this word unique to death. I can't help it. And you know, I was very interested in reading the French... New Testament one occasion and it spoke about God's unique peace, his unique son. That was their way of translating his only begotten son, unique. Well now it says in verse four, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now that's a phrase which has a parallel in the Gospels and other epistles when it says, blessed Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, or since the foundation of the world. But nowhere else in any epistle does it speak about a period before the foundation of the world in relation to the people of God. It does speak about before the foundation of the world when it speaks of Christ. But this is the only company of all the redeemed that have any relationship to something that God planned before the foundation of the world. Now I think it would be wise, for the sake of every one of us here, that we saw the other two. John 17 is in the language of Christ himself. John 17, verse 24. Father, I will, and this is not our subject, But that's another unique word. Throughout the whole range of scripture and throughout the whole range of Christian experience no person has ever been moved by the Spirit of God to go into the presence of God and say I will. But one. There's the unique Son of God. He could be in the presence of his Father and unhesitatingly say Father I will. I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now the other reference is in the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1, when it speaks of Christ being foreordained it says, we are redeemed, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. You see what's coming out of this, friends? The two references to Christ say that he was loved, that he was without blemish. And they are both said here in Ephesians of the Believer. Let's read verse 4 complete now. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame or without blemish before him in love. The very two things that the Father saw in that foreordained Lamb of God he sees in you and me. That almost sounds as though there's something wrong. Because most certainly, if I may speak for myself, he cannot see it in me, not as I am. But you see, there's a great principle that God works upon. And he first of all exercised this great principle on his beloved son. When our Saviour came, heaven opened over his head and attested that this was the beloved son of God in whom he was well pleased. The scriptures record that he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, did no sin, knew no sin. And yet he was reckoned with the transgressors and died the death of the cross. And I could be reckoned, something that I'm not in my own person, any more than he. That's God's method. Abraham is the great outstanding example. He believed God, that's all. And it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. Don't forget this reckoning is a mighty principle. But if we go on with that, we'd go too far. So now we've had three things. I haven't dared talk about the word foundation. That takes us right back to Genesis 1 verse 2, where we read, and the earth, our version says, was... But the earth became without form and void. Perhaps for the benefit of everyone who hasn't seen this, you might like to notice one feature in Genesis 1. You see, there's something to be said for the old days. With all our advance and all our wonderful science, we can't do this. In the old Puritan days, they had a, an hourglass on the pulpit. And when it ran out, he turned it upside down and said, we'll have another session. But this thing won't do that. Well, that's done. It's beaten, you see. So the hourglass for me, but they won't agree to that. There it says, if you look at your Bible, verse 2, you'll notice the word was is in ordinary type in the first occurrence, and the printer's gone out of his way to use italic type for the second. And you'll find he does it again. Why is that? The reason is this, that strictly speaking, the verb to be is not expressed by any word in the Hebrew language, it's always assumed. And when it is the verb to be, it sounds a bit Irish, it's the verb to become. Like we read in chapter 2, a man became a living soul. He wasn't a living soul until he became one. Lot's wife became a pillar of salt. She wasn't one until she became one. So the statement in Genesis 1 is, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth became without form and void. To you and both you. And those two words are used by Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah 4, Isaiah 34 in a context of vengeance and judgment. So the suggestion is that the church of the one body in this dispensation of the mystery Having nothing to do with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is related to something that took place before this present creation of which we all a part was made. But that's another story. There's so many other stories. But as I said earlier, it's, it's a fine thing to have to admit there's far more to say than any of us have got any ability or time to say. We never exhaust this. There's one book I've never read. I've read a good many. I've looked at it many times and it always has a forbidding title to me How to Master the English Bible. So I pass it by. I know it's going to master me <laughs> but I don't think anybody would instruct me how to master the Bible. So at the end of this meeting you'll still have to say as you shake hands with me at the door of so many who you you didn't say anything about so and so. That's a good testimony. No, there's more here than ever we can plumb or scale. But there's one feature with which I must conclude and I've got my eye on the block and we do not go beyond the stroke of seven. Ephesians 1, verse 6. I'm passing over the word adoption altogether because it would take us too long. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now that's where this feature ends. Now for the benefit of anyone, to whom this may be of use, will you notice this? Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, unto the praise of his glory. Verse 14, unto the praise of his glory. Three times that comes as a refrain. As you may have noticed, the hymn we sang. Blessed be our God and Father, who such wondrous love hath shown. Choosing us in Christ our Saviour, ere the world was overthrown, we shall see him face to face, praise the glory of his grace. And it says, Blessed be our Lord Christ Jesus. And then it says, Blessed be the Holy Spirit. And that is what this chapter is saying. That hymn was written by one of the members of the meeting many years ago, when I was explaining that Ephesians 1, 1-14 was like a hymn Three verses with a refrain. Next week he says, there's your hymn. And we've got it in our hymn book. So we've got now this subdivision. The first section is all about the will of the Father. There's not a word in it about sin, not a word about faith, not a word about redemption. It's all God's purpose in the remote past. The will of our Father. Putting our name down. Choosing us and giving us this high position. And then it changes to the work of the Son, in whom we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And then it goes on to the witness of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of promise, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. So there's a threefold division of that which we have called the charter of this church. The will of the Father, the work of the Son, the witness of the Spirit, all for us. All focusing upon our deadly need and God's great, overwhelming love. And so, the last word is, we are made, accepted. Now, this is not the usual word, accepted. This is not the usual word that you would pick out from the Greek if you wanted to say the word accepted. It occurs only once more in the New Testament. And that is found in the Gospels when the angel comes from heaven and said to one woman that had been picked out from all women of Israel, all oh, thou highly favoured among women. I never says that word about anybody else. Never says it about even one descendant of Abraham. Never says it about anybody right through the Acts of the Apostles. He waits till there's a company of people who are described in this very epistle as being alien and strangers, and hopeless, and Christless, and godless, in the world, and he said, you are highly favoured. I made you so, in the beloved. Now you can hardly believe that, can you? And that's what's true, that's what he's done. Highly favoured. And then he doesn't say, in Christ. He doesn't say, in my son. He doesn't say, in the Lord. He says, in the beloved. And that word doesn't come any time. I don't know how you're constituted, but when I hear too many loves, I don't think there's much in it. Like I said to one lady who was serving in a counter in Lancashire, she says, "Just yes, love." I said, "What do you say when you need it?" And she didn't remember what she'd said. <laughs> but when God says it, friends, when God says it to such as we, when He says it to you and me, when He says we are outsiders, rank outsiders. He said, I've made you highly favoured in the Beloved. I reckon i better stop there, friends. I'll leave that with you. If there's one single person here this evening who has said, I don't know what they make such a deal out of this Ephesians for, I hope you do now. Whether you believe it for yourself or not, that's your affair, not mine, friends. But as long as life lasts, as long as time is, I believe we'll be able to go back to this first chapter and see enough to make us thrill until the thrill ultimately eventuates in sight. May the Lord grant unto us to keep us faithful and loyal to the testimony entrusted to us. And may he set his seal once more upon this little gathering. (coughs) for his own sake.